Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Inside. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. On Sunday, more than a billion people around the world began celebrating Lunar New Year, bidding farewell to the Year of the Tiger and welcoming the Year of the Rabbit, or the Year of the Cat for those of Vietnamese heritage. The beginning of the 2023 lunar calendar commences two weeks of food, festivities with a focus on family and friends. California is home to a third of the country's Asian American and Pacific Islander population, and Lunar New Year is being celebrated as a state holiday for the very first time. Yesterday, our producer, Victor Corral-Martinez, went to one of these celebrations in Sacramento and spoke with An Lee, a student participating in the Lion Dance, about what the celebration means to her. Lunar New Year to me means lots of good food, coming home, you know, setting up the altar, inviting our ancestors back, you know, for the new year, cleaning up the house, obviously dragging the Lion Dance and my temple always holds an annual uh, Lunar New Year show, and then that means lots of uh, prep in the months before, dance practice, lots of like just cleaning up and prepping for like the Lunar New Year. We also spoke with Derek Lee, a former dancer, who talked about the pride felt in the community with Lunar New Year becoming an official state holiday. Yeah, I'm glad that Governor Newsom finally um, recognized that as a you know, state holiday kind of thing. And I, I really appreciate that. And coming from Asian as an Asian American, that's probably one of the main holidays that we celebrate, you know, and uh, it just brings us a lot of pride and joy every year to be able to celebrate something like that. So joining us now to tell us more about the holiday is Greg Jung, Executive Vice President of OCA Sacramento. That is a nonprofit which advocates for the AAPI community. And also joining us is Khan Lee, a member of the Kim Kwong Youth Association in Sacramento, whose group has been performing the Lion and Dragon Dances as part of the celebration. Good morning to you both. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Greg. You know, we both asked you here to be here for a celebratory time, but I can't really begin this conversation without acknowledging the tragedy that happened and unfolded in Southern California yesterday on the first day of Lunar New Year celebrations, a mass shooting in Monterey Park. I'm an Angelino. I'm familiar with that community east of downtown Los Angeles, overwhelmingly of Asian descent. 65% are Asian, according to the census, that claimed 10 people wounded an additional 10 others. Authorities say that the suspect took his own life. A motive is unknown. But how are you and the community here in Sacramento processing the tragedy that took place yesterday? Con, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, after hearing about the, the news, you know, I'm, I'm really saddened uh, by what happened. Um, my condolences go, all, go out to all the families of the victims. Uh, you know, I tr- see our community as my brothers and sisters. So, you know, it truly affects uh, us here. And I think we all need to stick together to support one another during these tragic events. Um, take a look at, you know, the you know, if we can look into the root causes of this situation and, and try to find ways to learn from it and improve from it. I think um, when these things happen in society, it's it's a failure, um, you, you know, to all. We can't look at this as just one individual uh, shooting uh, victims, but uh, I think we failed as a society when things like this happens, not only just in the Asian community, but in, you know, everywhere in society, you know, whether it's blacks, Latinos, um, white community, you know, we need to stick together um, as a whole so that um, situations like this, you know, if one fails, we all fail. So if we look at it that way, then I think we can improve um, society, improve the world and make it a better place and a safer place for all of us. Mm. Greg, what conversations are you having? Well, Vicky, we had a lot. So, you know, you know last yesterday morning, we 
at OCA, our president, Jiggy Dollar, uh, submitted a press release. Uh, Lunar New Year is a day of celebration. But this year, we find ourselves mourning for the victims of Monterey Park shooting. Our hearts and prayers are with Monterey Park community. So as Jinky stated, it's a day of celebration for us yesterday. But our organization, as well as a lot of organizations yesterday morning, were on the phone, were on email, and texting each other on how we should respond. So we were in contact with local and state uh, elected officials in trying to determine how we can support what took place down in Monterey Park and with all the celebrations taking place up here in Sacramento, what are the things that we should do up here to safeguard our residents? So a very busy morning. I do wanna share with your listeners that part of the decision made by the, the local and state elected officials is that today, uh, sponsored by the California Asian American and Pacific Islander Legislative Caucus, is going to hold a vigil today, 2.30, at the state capitol, steps of the state capitol. And this is going to be an informal gathering that will serve as a safe space for our community and our allies to come together in solidarity. So, again, I uh, just let your listeners know we will have an informal uh, gathering today, 2.30. And th- the governor also ordered flags to be flown at half-staff as well in light of everything that unfolded. Now, I want to be clear, a motive is unknown, and that is according to authorities, but in the past couple years, hate crimes against the AAPI community have gone up. They have skyrocketed across the country, including California. I mean, Khan, are you having conversations about it's been a traumatic couple years for for the community? Uh, yeah, we're having conversations uh, regarding that. And, uh, you know, hate crimes, you know, have risen. And, uh, you know, there are many uh, triggering events to that. So, you know, as an organization that focuses on the youth here in the Sacramento um, area, um, we believe that, you know, our kids here need to be aware of what's going on around in the world and be aware of all the triggers that are causing uh, many of these hate crimes and also uh, a lot of the mental illnesses that are going on uh, around the world. So uh, we, we tend to focus on our youth. We tend to instill in them a healthier lifestyle mentally and physically by the various uh, detailed practices of, of ways to uh, you know give back to the community, um, develop a compassion, develop uh, more of a mindfulness practices so they can, you know, strengthen not only uh, physically, but uh, live a more happier life mentally. And I think through that, that's the where the root starts. We instill those in our youth and that in our youth, I'm sorry. And as um, our youth grows older, they're able to, you know, um, develop into individuals that have a more solid foundation and uh, be able to contribute to society so that, um, events like this can begin to um, basically create a more positive world organically through our youth. So those are the type of discussions that that we've been doing and we've been focusing on um, through the youth group because uh, we truly believe that, you know, it all starts, you know, organically through our youth. If we can can instill in them the good, healthy lifestyles that they have um, as they're young, as we go older, we can prosper and create a better society. Yeah. I mean, you said an important word about it being triggering. And Greg, you you just told us that a vigil is going to be held at the state capitol later this afternoon. What conversations do you hope are had at, at this vigil at the state capitol? Uh, 
solidarity. Uh, again, it was amazing yesterday morning. Uh, the amount of the organizations and the elected officials that were reaching out, trying to seek answers to this tragedy in Monterey Park. And I think today at the vigil, which you will see will be a collective group of faith leaders, elected officials, community leaders, um, stating that this is a safe space for our community. I think it'd be a worthwhile event. So I want to get to both of your organizations, which is why we brought you here today and and also Lunar New Year. Uh, And the fact that this is the first year it is officially a state holiday in California. Khan, what does this mean to you? Oh, it's huge. It's it's uh, definitely something that, you know, we've been waiting a long time for the Asian community. And finally, it's happened. Uh, we would like to thank all the government officials for, um, you know, recognizing it as a state holiday. And we, we truly appreciate it. Uh, with that said, you know, um, you know, culture is, is a big part of what makes, you know, our state great, makes our country great. And uh, being able to um, we've been teaching our kids about the our heritage and culture. And finally, it's being recognized by. Uh, the state as an official holiday. So, you know, all of the teachings and all of the hard work that we've been doing to to kind of like cultivate our culture and instill in our young kids are finally uh, we're starting to see the fruits of, of that uh, happening. Um, so it's it's a, such a big deal for us and we're truly grateful for this and we'll continue to, um, you know, spread our culture, um, you know, show it off. These are moments in the Lunar New Year that we're able to go out to the community, give back, and also display a lot of our culture. We put up culture show performances just to, uh, one, our youth, our students can um, learn more about our own culture, but also let the world, let the community know, you know, what we're all about. Because once we're able to understand each other in a diverse environment environment where, you know, you can learn about others' cultures, you, get, you develop an understanding um, of each other, and that you know, brings you closer together as a in the society as a whole. Well, let's show it off a little bit more. And, and, you know, you're part of Lion and Dragon Dances. Talk to us about, help us visualize what these look like, especially because it's helping younger generations, as you say, connect with their heritage and their traditions. Yeah, so, um, you know, the Lion Dance and the uh, Dragon Dance performances, you know, first of all, our kids have so much fun doing it. They're out there expending all this energy you know, they're young, you know, the cold weather doesn't deter them. They're out there jumping around, performing and have a lot of fun. But um, basically um, what we want to bring to uh, the community is good energy, positive vibes for the new year. You know, we go through a whole year. Uh, we're done with the, the previous year. We're going to erase all the bad energy from that year and we're going to start fresh. New year, we're bringing, you know, energy. We're bringing in enthusiasm. We're bringing in laughter. We're bringing in all these drumming and firecrackers to basically uh, sweep away all the bad energy and bring the new year with good positive energy to start off. Um, there we have all these fun characters, like this year is the year of the rabbit and the cat. We have two mascots running around. We also have bring together the um, uh, the fortune uh, saint that would you know bring good fortune to the local businesses uh, all around the community. The dragon and the lions, you know, they're there to to protect and to bring in good luck to the businesses along with the lucky Buddha. So um, we're out here performing. Uh, you know, we our routines are basically we start off by bowing to the businesses, you know, being grateful that they invited us there. And then we 
do various stunts. Um, the dragon team performs their act. The mascots and the uh, Lucky Buddha, you know, they're the ones that control the whole routine. And it's just a blast out there. It's like a little party at every performance that we do. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it sounds just so vibrant and, and fun and pays dividends. Like the ripple effects are just amazing across generations and just across the entire community by performing in front of businesses as well. Greg, you know, Khan touched upon this, Year of the Rabbit or Year of the Cat. So you, Lunar New Year is celebrated in different ways across Asian countries and cultures. Can you share some of those differences with us? I will. Is uh, so my heritage is Chinese, so uh, we use the term Chinese New Year. But it's the term Lunar New Year is a, a global term for one of the most important holidays for the Asian communities around the world. Basically, Lunar New Year celebrates the first day of spring on the lunar calendar. So every year we celebrate at different times. This year it's a little bit earlier. It's a generally a 15-day celebration. Um, so some of the things has been mentioned before quickly uh, regard to New Year, the traditions that a lot of APIs have is that we clean up to prepare for the new year. We sweep away the bad year. We decorate to invite good fortune. So you'll see a lot of red at our households and clothing that we wear. Most important, importantly for all the API communities is visiting family. It is so the cornerstone of the API uh, life is that family is paramount. All the communities, all the cultures eat delicious and auspicious foods. A lot of the foods that we eat during our banquets have specific meaning that provide good health and good luck. Um, for our tr Chinese tradition, we hand out red envelopes with money inside and we hand them out to our loved ones, um, children. The more red envelopes we can hand out, the more good luck will we place upon our family. And then as mentioned, watching the dragon and the lion dances. Lions are a symbol of luck and happiness, and dragons are braveness and power. Uh, quick recap on the year of the rabbit. So last year was the year of the tiger, which is a powerful period of action and impulse. The rabbit sign, though, is a softer period. The focus is on self-reflection. The rabbit is a very strong symbol for peace. Uh, we hope that this year will be a much more conservative and reflective year on our decision-making. Hmm. Khan, I want to end with you. Um, what would you like people who are unfamiliar with Lunar New Year and getting acquainted with it, what would you like them to understand about it? Uh, I'd like them to understand that, you know, um, it's important that we uh, learn about each other. I think um, every culture has its uniqueness to it. Um, we all have certain things that we care about. And I think that um, for the Lunar New Year, it's an opportunity, um, you know, as Asian Americans to start fresh, um, to improve upon each year. You know, we go through life. We need to continue to, to grow, improve. So for us Asian Americans to continue to uh, prosper within each year and for, um, for the world to, to see Asian Americans use Lunar New Year as an opportunity to learn more about our cultures, learn more about Asian Americans in general so that we can you know, build a world of understanding and trust within one another. Khan and Greg, thank you so much for joining us for a really important conversation. Thank you so much for having us.
Thank you so much. Greg Jung is executive vice president of OCA Sacramento, and Con Lee is with the Kim Kwong Youth Association in Sacramento, telling us about Lunar New Year, which became a state holiday for the first time this year. And we're going to close this segment with some lion dance music. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Californians know all too well the significant threat wildfires pose to our communities with the potential to destroy and change lives forever. As larger, deadly, and more destructive wildfires become more common, they can also have a major ripple effect on our economy, from the damage to businesses, the loss of employees, disruption of supply chains, and impacting the stock values of companies. But despite the increasing wildfire risk to companies based in the western United States, A new report from UC Davis reveals only a fraction of publicly traded companies mention this risk, which is required in disclosures to the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC. The report suggests a vast majority of public companies are not being as forthcoming about this vulnerability to wildfires and other extreme weather events as they should be, despite the risk it poses to them in our economy. I spoke with Professor Paul Griffin with the UC Davis Graduate School of Management and lead author of this report. Professor Griffin, thanks for making the time today. Thank you. So you've been at UC Davis since 1981. Uh, You're an authority on accounting and financial information and disclosure, particularly in relation to climate change. How did you delve into this part of your field and your profession? Well, uh, my work uh, earlier on was on, it's always been on corporate disclosure and what companies were telling shareholders and other stakeholders. But just over the years, it's been obvious that companies need to say more than just what they're doing financially. They need to talk about the environmental, social, and sort of governance issues. Um, so I picked up on this about, um, oh, 10, 10, 15 years ago, uh, and then been working on it ever since. Uh, and so it's resulted in the sorts of studies you see today on wildfire disclosure, but I have other, I have other papers on heat waves, I have other papers on emissions disclosure. There's a, just a lot of uh, additional environmental issues that companies need to think about. And tell them, tell the outside um, parties, investors, creditors, employees, uh, other people, um, of what they're doing, what their what their responses are to some of these events. When looking at the report that you just recently published in response to wildfires, I mean, you examined more than eighty thousand filings between nineteen ninety six and twenty eighteen. When did this part of your research start for you? Was it a particular wildfire or event that took place in in California, or did it gradually gain your interest over time? I think what happened is that these these events became clearly more severe and more frequent, and so and and then the technology becomes available for for us to pour over, like, again, 86,000 reports, and we can do that electronically. We don't have to do it manually, which we would have had to do in the past, which would have made it almost prohibitive to actually do that, uh, but we can do that in electronic form now. And so we can study uh, you know, a large array of, of, the, of these regulatory reports and identify those who are what we call disclosers versus those firms that have been subject to a wildfire event, and we call those exposed to wildfires. So we can identify that too, not 
through the regular reports, but through um, uh, geodata that's available through NOAA and other other forms of uh, data sets. Give us an idea of the scope of your report in terms of how many different firms you examined, the types of companies you looked into, where they're located, and even the range of size of these companies. Again, we we're not that we're not constrained. Other than they, they had to be public companies because they were giving these regular reports, so they had to be public companies, um, and uh, we're constrained somewhat by the availability of electronic data. So we, we had to start at, at the point we started at, uh, and then we stopped in the 2018 um, because we were working on this in 1920 and so forth. So it takes a couple of years to get the paper in shape and eventually become published. Um, so um, so that's that's where we stood. But it's it's a, a wide variety of firms. We've got the um, uh, agriculture industry in there. We've got finance and banking in there. We've got the the full array. We've got technology in there as well. Um, so we have the full array of industries. We have a, a, a long time period, um, and we have uh, firms of all sizes, so long as they're public companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are well aware of the increasing and also the just the devastating risk that wildfires can pose to our state, uh, destroying homes, businesses, impacting the supply chain, sometimes, you know, just nearly disseminating and destroying whole communities. But how do they affect our economy, both on a micro and a macro level? Well, firms uh, have different degrees of exposure to wildfires, depending on where they're located. Um, And so they are going to have certain facilities uh, in those locations. They could be uh, factories, it could be warehouses, it could be head- headquarters and so forth. And so the wildfires can have a direct effect, right, uh, because they're right there in the, in the midst of very close to wildfire, or they could have a sort of more of an indirect effect through smoke and through employee um, um, not not being able to uh, show up and so forth, but they're through employees. So th- that's that's how these firms are affected. Now, now the question is, um, they've experienced wildfires before. What are they doing to build resilience and harden their headquarters? And there's been some cases where firms actually changed their headquarters or they have a headquarter option B just in case headquarter A is damaged. Um, so firms are taking actions. Um, but as I said from the conclusion of our study, they're not telling us, mm. the average uh, person or stakeholder of firm, enough about what they're doing. And one of the reasons they may not be doing that is that they feel they might be giving information away that, to their competitors, since it could be proprietary, that they don't want to tell too much about their, the way they operate and where, they, where they're operating. Hmm. How are companies supposed to disclose these risks and these vulnerabilities? What, what are the requirements? The, the, um, the 10K, the, uh, under the Securities Laws, the 34 Act, uh, was, was legislated way back in 1934 as a result of the uh, you know, Great Depression. Um, and they, uh, there are certain item numbers in, these, in, in, in the, uh, the 10K requirements. Um, and some of those item numbers require that a firm tell shareholders and, and, and investors about material risks they face. Um, and those risks could be risks to the business uh, plan. It could be risks to the infrastructure of the firm. There could be uh, other risks uh, associated with maybe a business strategy or the competition they face. So they are required to do that, but only if they meet the criterion of materiality. And so materiality is a, is a sort of a moving target sometimes. Uh, some, some people would say it's one thing. Some people say it's another. Um, and so often it's a judgment call as to whether a firm will, will, will view an event or 
events that affect their future operations as risk-related sufficient that's as material to be disclosed. And so um, it's, it's not, not always the case that you can identify how the firm made their decision. They might have looked at a wildfire and say, well, that's not material. It really hasn't affected that much. Or they might say, yes, it really does. And in the future, uh, it's likely to affect us even more. And therefore, there, w- there would be a requirement to disclose. But for the, for the firms that don't disclose, they, they would judge the, the wildfire event to be not material for operations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, what we're observing is probably not enough enforcement of the rule for disclosure uh, because the SEC and, and shareholders they have many other things to think about and try to enforce these disclosures or, or add pressure for firms to actually make these make a fuller and more complete disclosure. So the judgment on disclosure falls on on the company. Yes, it's a company decision subject to pressure uh, by the regulators or pressure by shareholders uh, for misrepresentation or misrepresent or omission of something that's that an outside party would think is material. So that brings me to a part of your study, which found that when filing wildfire risks in federal filings with the SEC, some firms are instead placing them in non-specific risk disclosures. What exactly is that, and what is the strategy behind that? Yeah, we call that boilerplate as a, as a general term for that, and in, in the sense that they can, they feel the firms feel they're satisfying the rules and regulations for disclosure by putting it into a very general category. So they they can defend that by saying, well, it's a, we, we we considered it, but we put it in this general category. And uh, there's there's some actually legal opinions. I won't get into the detail, but some legal opinions that would actually uphold the legality of that form of disclosure, even though. There could be a wildfire event that required disclosure. Um, the boilerplate is not necessarily uh, considered um, illegal or I- inconsistent with sec- uh, securities laws. Uh, but you do see that, and that's uh, often uh, a disclosure people make. But that would not be picked up by our study because we're looking for specific disclosures of wildfire and wildfire-related words. Is this done overwhelmingly in terms of not disclosing or, or filing the the wildfire risks and vulnerabilities? There's probably more of it than we'd like. Um, but remember, the, the, the SEC, the, the Form 10-K document for a the, the typical com- company is about 300 pages of text. And so... Firms are always looking at, do I need to put more in or can I put in less in and can I summarize in some ways? And so you can see that there's, a, there's an argument there's, that some firms say, well, there's too much information. It's not going to do anybody any good because they're just going to be overwhelmed. Uh, too little information is probably not good either. So there's that Goldilocks sort of balance that firms are looking for. And some firms would, would include specific disclosures in that balance. Others would say, no, I'm going to put it into the you know, general boilerplate category. Hmm. Are there some companies that um, are kind of a case study in, in the research and that, you, that you're doing in terms of this? Well, there, there are a number of studies that would, that would be good as a way to demonstrate some of the sort of the themes or the, or the ideas that we have in our paper. Um, obviously, PG&E is one because they've had wildfires and they've had litigation and, and their, their pre-wildfire 
disclosure was was somewhat, um, I think, subpar in terms of what you'd expect. But there are other cases in uh, in Northern California. You know, some some of the wineries, for example, uh, would have been devastated by the fires of a couple of years ago, and so they would they would have an event which would 100% call for disclosure because it's a significant event, and everybody will realize that's a significant event. So it's got to be in the, in the reports. But we have to think of it as a distinction between disclosing an event which occurred mm-hmm. and disclosing the future risk associated with those events that ha- that will occur in the future, but yet to have a, have been uh, have occurred. So we have to. There's that distinction. Um, and again, what we're finding is that there's more likely to be disclosure when there's an event. Is less likely to be disclosure <laughs> when there are these events that could occur in the future with. And with wildfires with increasing frequency and increasing severity. Mm. You and your colleagues were encouraged, though. There are some firms that are acknowledging this risk of wildfires. Which companies are they or what kind of examples in terms of the actions that they're taking to to disclose the risk and also what they're doing to mitigate the risk of wildfires? That question, it's, it's a good question, but it's not What's one the, the focus of our research? We're looking at a, a large sample, and it would be just would be overwhelming mm-hmm. for us to look in the individual, each individual company, and whether they did the right thing, did the wrong thing, are they compliant with the securities laws or not? So we, we don't have that. We we do have. We know that that there's the we know the California firms. We know the different states, um, and so in the Western states, we're seeing more responsiveness. In California, we're seeing a little bit more responsiveness relative to the western states, but we also have responsiveness in, 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 in areas like Texas, Florida, and, and even up in the northeast have had wildfires. So it's it's a national phenomenon. Well, it's, it's global, but our study was national in terms of the sample we look at. Um, so um, we don't have those ex- specific examples in our study because that, that wasn't the purpose of the study. Would you go as far as to say that there are some companies that you would consider bad actors? I'm sure there are. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's not my job to, to name those bad actors. <laughs> what are some of the consequences faced by a company, um, stockholders, communities, when when the companies where they're headquartered or where they're saying they're headquartered, if these wildfire risks aren't properly disclosed? What's interesting, in one of the results I found surprising, um, uh, not what we might have expected, and that is that the the firms that you would consider, quote, good firms that had wildfires and disclosed the wildfire and perhaps made a disclosure about wildfire risk, we call those the discloser firms, and relative to the non-discloser firms that also were subject to wildfires, the valuation, the fair valuation, the market valuation of, of the firms that were disclosers deteriorated relative to those that didn't say anything. So in a sense, you're being transparent, you're coming, you're being forthcoming, uh, but that's not necessarily going to serve your shareholders uh, in a positive way. Uh, so uh, there, there's a little bit of a, a sort of a disconnect there, and I'm sure that's what firms think about when they're they deciding to disclose it. They take a little bit of a hit. Yeah, that they might take a hit, but, but the other side of that is by taking a hit, they're signaling that they're much more forthcoming a transparent firm and they should they should get a positive result from that as well so there's two there's two sides to that why should this matter to the general public it matters to the general public because these firms are part of our environment we we depend on these firms for services for products and uh, we want those firm, those those products and services to be priced appropriately and not and not to be have not having to pay for uh, i guess 
decisions or lack of decisions made by firms when they could have made those firms to make the product better or, or more resilient or make the operations more resilient. So uh, we were affected you know, in terms of what we buy, what we use. Mm-hmm. Does your study and your research come with any recommendations in terms of the types of fire prevention and disclosure steps you recommend? Recommendations would relate more to consideration of the current policy and whether that could be tightened uh, to be and be more specific about what giving guidance to firms as to what they should do, and and uh, to in, increase the information to the public on what those risks are, because uh, as I indicated earlier, some of those risks are hidden, and they're hidden either through boilerplate or not at all uh, for for the very large majority of the firms we studied. Mm-hmm. They're hidden risks. They should not be. Risks should not be hidden. They should be more transparent and more forthcoming on their information. Is there enough accountability? That's the same thing. Uh, We would like to see more accountability. Uh, We'd like to see firms indicate what they're doing, right? Um, But they will look at that and say, well, wait a minute. It's potentially if I tell everybody what we're doing, what we plan to do, I may be giving away information to my competitors, and that's not good for anyone. Have you received any response or comment from, like, the SEC or, or public companies or firms? Um, not from the SEC, um, although I know that my work is read by the SEC. But um, in one in one case, uh, there was a reporter in another, in another um, session that I did um, talk to a particular firm and said, well, does the SEC require that you disclose wildfire? And this person said no, but and it was correct. But the question should have been, does the SEC require that you disclose material wildfire events or material risk? And the answer is going to be yes. Mm. So I'd like to see more clarification on materiality so it can help firms make those choices, right? make the correct choices. We're talking about companies and whether they disclose wildfire risk, but more broadly, there is extreme weather and, and climate change. And you've been looking into this for decades. How, how did you first become connected to this type of research, and I would imagine it has probably evolved significantly in the decades that you've been focused on this. Well, it's interesting. Um, In the late 1970s, and I was a very, very young researcher (laughs) at that time, um, I was actually asked by the Securities Exchange Commission to do a study on bribery. Uh, because there was concerns that um, American firms were paying bribes to international firms to gain business and so forth. Uh, And so at at a very young age, um, I became interested in whether firms were making sufficient disclosure about the way that they were making payments. We called them facilitating payments in those days. Again, a euphemism. Um, To what extent were they disclosing that? And those those numbers being quite small relative to billion dollar sales, however, material because they talked about the the way in which the firm was managing uh, its operations. Uh, so I've been really thinking about these issues, you know, for my entire career. And this recent study has gotten interest from not only across the country but but in other countries as well, right? I'm getting calls from uh, uh, Europe as well. Yes. What does that signal to you? It signals that this is a global issue, not not an American issue and not a California issue. How do you want listeners to think about this research and, and potentially maybe even any proactive steps they can do to protect themselves when it comes to choosing which companies to invest in? 
Well, the public out there buy products, as I said before, and they use services that are offered by these companies. And, and so it doesn't require that much more to find out what these companies are doing to mitigate, uh, disclose, uh, manage uh, the various climate risks they face. Uh, and uh, it could be done through general public media or it could be done through uh, reading uh, you know, some summaries of these particular statements or documents I look at. Um, but once read that, 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 using either social media or other means to apply some pressure to these firms to change their ways, make, make uh, more fuller disclosures about these risks because they are important and they, they're driving markets. Um, we know that. Um, and there's, there's ways the firms can benefit by being more transparent and more forthcoming on these disclosures. So if the firms benefit, the consumers benefit. Professor Griffin, thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. And that is Professor Paul Griffin with the UC Davis Graduate School of Management and lead author of a report which found that despite the increasing risk of wildfires to the economy, many public companies are not disclosing this risk to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is federally required. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. A wonderful event is happening this weekend to support the arts in Sacramento. The Sofia Soiree is filled with the savory creativity of food, the wide-ranging talent of live performances, and getting down with some music. It is an occasion that is very unique and supports the B Street Theater, which touches the lives of youth with exposure to arts education and literacy. And I'll be emceeing the event. So joining us are the Sofia Soiree Committee co-chairs Jacob Guterres Montoya and Mary Daffin ahead of the event this Saturday. We're going to have so much fun. So fun. <laughs> so fun. We're so wait. excited. All right. So let's get to the origin story. How did the Sofia Soiree come to be? Okay, I'll take that one. So um, this used to be an event called Be a Part of It. So I think a lot of our patrons know this event being at the Old Space. And it was a big a super fun party and then um, we had it switch over to the new space and it became a little bit more of a sit-down event um, and now this time we're um, elevating it up to a sit-down dinner we're doing a bunch of appetizers really delicious entertainment a delicious entertainment I'm going to keep I that. love that yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah a full immersive event um, the whole thing goes um, until midnight so it's a big party yeah that is amazing and Mary how did you get involved in this Jacob. (laughs) Actually, I love the B Street Theater. I'm a huge fan. And just live entertainment, I think, is so important Mm. in our life. And coming out of COVID, 
I feel like all of us missed that so much a part of our soul just was suffering. And so when Jacob asked me to be involved, I jumped at the chance, as well as I think everyone on the committee. Yeah, you you hit home on such an important point. And we've had these conversations, endless conversations. You really can't talk about it enough about the impact on arts following the pandemic. And the Sophia opened in 2018. That wasn't a lot of time to create that momentum and that buzz. And I would imagine that this soiree is just an overdue opportunity. It's a third year to really like show off this wonderful venue that also has wonderful ripple effects to arts education and literacy in the community. Absolutely. We're very excited. Um, I think this event is a fundraiser and it is meant to help kind of fund our operations um, for the Sophia. And I think people that have been to the Sophia will see how this can be a stunning event space. We are decking this place out with stunning design. Paulette Trainer, Mandy Peterson, Mary Daffin. Oh, gosh, there's not a better team. Yeah, and also a shout-out to Cap Radio Classical Music host Jennifer Reason. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, gosh the entertainment is going to yeah. be off the hook. I love that we're going to have different levels of entertainment, different kinds of entertainment. And then when you add on to that the company at B Street, this really is a one-of-a-kind event in Sacramento because of the caliber of talent that is going to be there that evening. I just, I feel like it's going to be a huge success for B Street and for the success in years to come for this gem that we have here in Sacramento. Oh, yes. Jennifer Reason has been instrumental in securing some incredible classic artists, including we will have a harpist playing on a solid gold harp. Oh, wonderful. I mean, where else? I know. (laughs) How many lives of youth and children across Northern California, Sacramento, does the Sophia and the B Street Theater touch each year? Well, so far, we've reached 13,000 annually just in the last couple of months, but usually, not annually, in the last couple of months, but we're reaching about 31,000 here in the next season until May and around 100,000 annually. Wow. When it, when it comes to exposure to the arts, in what ways are you doing that for those, you know, 31,000 children? We are introducing some of these kids who have never even been to the theater before um, into this arena of inspiration. I think. So I'm oh, going to yes. jump in oh, because jump I feel in. so passionate about this, Jacob. I mean, if you look back and think about the first time that you experienced a live theater performance mm. by professionals, I remember mine. I was in eighth grade. I was um, I attended the Baton Rouge Little Theater, and it was West Side Story, and it was mesmerizing. And I think when we look at the youth in and around Sacramento, we're giving them the opportunity to, uh, first of all, live entertainment of a high caliber, which is so important. We have the opportunity and the privilege to really broaden their horizons, to change their perspective to introduce them to subject matter that they would never have the opportunity to. And it's all from a theater chair. I just think that is amazing. And I think it's so impactful, especially for kids who may not have the opportunity or the means to be there. Yeah, mine was Beauty and the Beast. Same you remember. And my mom saved up. uh, She had to save to actually take me. And it was such a treat. Do you remember yours, Jacob? Annie. Annie. I mean, we (laughs) all remember that. How impactful is that? And I really want our next generation, as Jacob and the whole committee in B Street, we want that next generation of theater goers 
to to just be immersed. And I love the word that you use, Jacob, because I think it's so important. And then we will create the next generation of support for the B Street Theater. Yeah, absolutely. I think over the last 36 years, the job has been to inspire all of these theater goers. And what's so wonderful is we're now seeing people come back 30 years later with their kids, mm-hmm. introducing them. It's a full generational cycle, and it's something that we've built our mission on, and we're continuing to forge forward with that, as with Lindsay, our new artistic director. So, Oh, and that's great. Yeah, so talk yeah. to us about that, too, because that's that's a big difference with, with this third annual soiree. Yeah, I mean, at this point, what, Lindsay Birch, she took over this year, um, and she we are in such She's a rock hands. star. She's a rock star. We <laughs> love her so much. The whole organization is in such incredible hands, and I think um, capable hands also as far as the team goes. We have incredible people that are just surrounding our offices, and everybody is just so on the same page um, and ready to thrive forward. When talking about the importance of art exposure and education, how has that importance changed or evolved in recent years? I think one big important thing is kind of to recognize that a lot of these kids that are coming in haven't um, been exposed to our programming um, because of the pandemic. And so they're being exposed now for the first time. And so I think we've really rallied behind trying to get new teachers in, um, new school districts in. So reaching out, extending our hand as far as we possibly can to the greater Sacramento area and beyond. That's wonderful. When we get to the event on Saturday, let's help (laughs) visualize. I mean, we already visualized a little bit of it, but kind of run us through what this really wonderful um, evening is going to be into the wee hours, potentially, of of the morning. It kicks off with a cocktail reception, but also a a dinner, a very intimate dinner by Canon. Yes. Do you want me to start? I'll start and you finish. Okay, great. Sounds good. You'll get to the amuse-bouche or the appetizer, and then we'll keep moving on. Okay, yes, that's that's lovely. So what we did is we tiered the event, and our first tier are our dinner guests. And as you said, it's an intimate dinner. I think it's right around 90 people, and they will be upstairs in Gallery A that will be completely transformed. Again, Paulette Trainer and Mindy Peterson have done an outstanding job. And we've transformed the room. One reason is we want this intimate atmosphere, but we also want people to see the B Street in a different light. That it is, it's not just a theater, but it can be an event space as well. And so once they're in the room, they will see how we've transformed it. And I don't want to give too much away, um, but it will be transformed. We have a lovely dinner that's being provided by Canon. Midtown Spirits is providing um, some fun cocktails. And then Ginger Elizabeth is providing our desserts for that for that um, group of guests. And then as our dinner guests are enjoying dinner, we will have another set of guests come in. We call them our program and after-party guests. And they will be greeted in the lobby by some outstanding entertainment. They will have tray past apps from... Jana Gyro. Jana Gyro. Yeah, delicious. And so again, a lot Midtown of local Spirits. businesses. Absolutely. Yeah. We wanted to involve our community. It's a community theater. So they will be greeted there. And then at a certain time, we will all be up ushered into the theater where the B Street Company will take us away. 
So yeah. take us. And the You're B Street Company, absolutely. The B Street <laughs> Company will take us through building a play on stage with the audience interaction. Um, so it's going to be a really fun experience. And then we'll have live entertainment by Justin Farron, a local favorite. Um, and then we'll have a performance by the Sacramento Contemporary Dance Theater, highlighting a show and a partnership situation um, with Habitat for Humanity and St. John's Program for Real Change. And then we will make sure the audience understands the educational components to what we do at the Sophia with then a beautiful fund to need, hoping to raise as much money as we possibly can. Um, and then we will be heading into the after party heading into with the DJ after party. Bobby Brown, um, some fun photo booth options. We're going to have a cigar bar in our courtyard. So there's going to be... Oh, and the bourbon bar. Don't oh, we're going to have that. a bourbon bar sponsored by Canon with bourbon wow. bar bites. I mean, it's just going to be fun. Yeah, full of creativity, full stomachs also, and and making your heart full too by supporting local businesses. And and this, as we say, the intention of this is a fundraising event for arts education and helping the community and B Street Theater. Absolutely. And we are so happy to have you, Vicki. I am so excited. (laughs) So excited. I know. I'm already thinking about I'm a little nervous, but it's going to be so much fun. It's all it's all it's it's a good a good anxiousness. And it's creative (laughs) cocktail attire. So we're letting people kind of interpret that on their own. So we hope we see some fun outfits. Oh, I am sure. I am sure you will. Jacob and Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And the Sophia Soiree is happening this Saturday. And we do have more information if you want to attend and tickets at capradio.org slash insight on our insight page. That is it for insight today. You can learn more about all of our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation, email us insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones and our engineer is Antonio Munez. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.